Welcome to Brave Dynamics. This is your host, Jeremy Yao. Leadership is harder than looks. As a proven founder and Harvard MBA, I interview courageous entrepreneurs, executives, and investors every week. I also share my frontline experiences, coaching insights, and own professional development journey. If you're stepping up as a new leader, founding a startup, or venturing into the great unknown, this is the podcast for you. Niels Vilar is the founder and CEO of Satelligence, a satellite-based forest, agriculture, carbon and water monitoring service provider based in the Netherlands. Founded in 2016, Satelligence has over 60 clients and partners, including Mondelez, Unilever, Bunch, the World Wildlife Fund, Rabobank, Robeco, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of the Netherlands, and others. Satelligence aims to aid stakeholders in agricultural commodity production in their progress towards sustainability commitments, transparent agricultural sourcing, and better investment decisions. News has been working in tropical forest landscapes for over 20 years and is also an expert on monitoring reporting verification systems for REDD+. He was an invited member of the Roundtable on Sustainable Palm Oil Working Group on Greenhouse Gas Emissions and the Technical Advisor to the European Commission on Satellite Monitoring Issues related to the implementation of the EC Renewable Energy Directive. News received his Master of Science in Forestry with a specialization in remote sensing from Wageningen University in 2003. A retired competitive swimmer, he enjoys exploring the forest with his kids, cycling and snowboarding. Good to see you. Hi, Jeremy. Nice to talk. I'm so excited to have your point of view on environmental sustainability on this show. It's such an important topic for the world. Exactly. So I think for those who don't have the opportunity to know you, how would you share your leadership journey over time with people? Sure. It started at a young age. My father was a biology teacher, so I was fascinated with the environment from a young age. And then I started studying forestry. Actually, I first thought I would want to do environmental economics, but still I was intrigued more with the forest. So I studied forestry and very early on, I also looked into remote sensing which is uh, the observation using satellites, aircraft sensors, and geographical information systems. So basically at the early stage, I already combined environmental issues with technology. And then I started working in my last year already at a company, which was a spin-off from the university, which was really fascinating when you're uh, young, uh, you dive in with all your enthusiasm. And I've been working there for quite a long time until I realized that it was a lot of science for the sake of science and less so service-oriented applications. So a lot of projects, which is interesting, but I thought I want to do more for the entire planet. And also clients are very important, customer care, etc. So I thought, okay, no, I want to do this by myself, set up my own company. So that's why four years ago, I set up Intelligence with three people at the time, and it grew really fast. So the next year, we were already with seven people extra until uh, 20, 30 people now. It's really interesting ride, a very fast one. I have to adapt all the time. But yeah, I think that has been the journey so far. 
Amazing. I mean, you know, it's interesting because you had such a long passion in forestry and environmental sustainability, and you were there as an employee and as a researcher, and now as a founder and CEO. How did you get started? What kicked off your passion for the environment and the world? Yeah, like I mentioned, my parents are teachers, and my father is a biology teacher. And then I got fascinated seeing all the David Attenborough series from a young age. But also my great-grandparents had been living in Indonesia for quite some time, before and during the war. And my grandmother always used to tell all kinds of stories about the occasional tiger under the house and all the plantations that was in North Sumatra near Medan. And I think that started getting me interested. Okay, I want to see those areas for myself. So years later, in 95, I started the forestry and in the year 2000 I did my first MZ thesis where did I go to Indonesia so that was really interesting to have the first-hand experience and I went there with my good friend and now co-director uh, Arjen Freeling to do this thesis work we traveled for 30 hours from Jakarta to Sumatra in a car trying to get to the forest and we didn't see the forest anywhere because a lot of the areas were burnt there had been terrible fires so it's devastated huge areas and finally we reached intact forest but also there we saw a lot of top and paper plantations uh, palm uh, plantations so we realized also by talking to the local people and their stories, how challenging it is to balance development with the conservation of invaluable forest areas. That started basically my journey in, in the sustainability and in tech world. I'm curious, were there any moments on the trip where you were thinking of your great-grandmother? Because there must have been a, quite a bit of a difference between what your great-grandmother experienced probably a century ago versus yeah. what you were seeing with your own eyes. What was it like to see that before and after? It was very interesting. Actually, she was still alive at that time in 2000. I remember the stories uh, that she told about the house, which was on poles. And of course, a lot of the houses right now, they look nothing like those old houses. So I was with our supervisor who is from Indonesia and we were driving around. They said, I really want to have a picture of such a house, but we couldn't find it anywhere. <laughs> I remember that she said, oh, it looks nothing like back in the old days. But still, I know that a lot in the culture remains and in the friendships of old with the country and its people. That would never change. It's just the modernization and malls everywhere and things like that. And it's interesting, right, because you've had that long passion for Southeast Asia and environment, and now you're building a company that's off to save the world in helping the, with the forestation issues that we're seeing, especially in Southeast Asia. So why is leadership so important in environmental sustainability? Our company is creating software to help its users identify risks such as deforestation, fire, but also drought diseases and the performance like the yields of agricultural commodities like palm oil, cocoa, coffee, rice, etc. For example, if we talk about deforestation, it's kind of a serious issue and a sensitive issue. So you want to be very right about claiming that in area deforestation takes place and that it is associated to a supply chain of a corporation, whether it's some big palm growers like Wilmar or traders like Bungi, Cargill, or consumer good brands like Unilever, who are all working hard to demonstrate transparently the things that they do to make their production sustainable and have proof. 
I think the leadership part is, in my opinion, in my role, especially sharing the experiences of the past 20 years. Like I said, driving around in all these areas. What is the real story on the ground? What do the people say? What is behind what's happening? It is one to use satellite technology to detect that trees are gone, but there is a whole context around it. Who is operating there? Why did something happen? And I think when we talk about leadership in my role, one that I am most enthusiastic about is the thought leadership in being able to share these 20 years of experience on the ground. And I think that that is a key thing. It's not just the technology. It is how we put that technology into context and into use. And I think that is where the experience of people showing how other clients do it and what my personal take on it is and what other thought leaders think about that, sharing that and starting the conversation. I think that is a key component of this leadership as I see it. Now, what's interesting is that you're doing really substantial work for startup for-profit approach. And there's also been a ton of other nonprofits and social enterprises tackling deforestation and palm oil associated risks. So why did you choose this approach? I mean, did you ever think to yourself like, oh, I could build a nonprofit or I could build a startup? Like, because, you know, that's what a lot of people are thinking, right? They care about the problem, but they don't know how to do that in yeah. a business versus community initiative. We did some considerable thinking about that in the early stages. The reason we started with a social enterprise is simply that we see that there is a lot of donor involvement and non-governmental organizations, NGOs, working on this, but they depend on donations, basically. And it is our idea that if we want to have real transformation, which is really sustainable over time, we need to think about how we can integrate this in the business processes. And that means that if we monitoring also what we do, you don't want to monitor for six months deforestation. You want to monitor since 2015 or even before, and you want to do that continuously. So you also need to have, say, continuous income to be able to maintain this. And that's why we thought, yeah, it's far too insecure. We want to move from projects to services. Services have to be more sustainable through time than a a for-profit, but with an impact vision, making sure we help create a better planet with all the right intentions on a for-profit model. We thought that would make most sense, especially now we all also see that financial institutions are actually going through a kind of a a green revolution. Deforestation is much more on the agenda than it used to be like a year or two years ago. So we think that working together on a business basis with an impact attitude, that is the way to go. That's amazing. And I think you've really done your role, right? Because you're providing something that's very difficult for any one entity, a small entity to do, which is to work on the semi-automation and the satellite imagery and the continual reporting across time. That's just a, such a difficult problem. And I think I love what you've done by being able to partner not just with the growers and the traders and the financial institutions, but also with the manufacturers and other nonprofits and social enterprises. So it's an interesting partnership that you've been able to kind of weave together with your data. I think it's definitely yeah. a role. I think that's also a critical ingredient to where we see our company going, like solving the planet's biggest challenges. There's not a single tech company or whatever company that can do it in isolation that can do it alone. So partnerships with all stakeholders working on sustainability and commodity uh, production, even other tech companies. For example, we are working now uh, to get a new partnership with Ulula, which is a tech company, which is focusing more on social risk. And if we integrate the two, we know more about risk overall. 
So I think with partnership with clients, but also a partnership with other technology providers, we have to do that all together in partnership. What are some common misconceptions about environmental sustainability? You're so deep in it, you know everything about it. And what would you say what the public has in terms of misconceptions about environmental sustainability? There's two things, the public, and there is, from a tech perspective, what kind of the misconceptions are. If we talk about the public, I think it is in this day and age of uh, social media and Twitter short messages, it is really difficult to nuance a balanced view of what is actually going on. I think there is such an overload of information that it really requires a lot of extra effort from yourself there to question everything and make up your own mind about what is actually going on. I think that is the struggle for people. We see that in the palm oil sector where we are working with several companies who are working really hard on the ground to make life better for local communities and also at the same time produce sustainably and eradicate the deforestation. But it's really hard to get their story to the consumer. The narrative is quite negative in consumer countries. So I think one misconception, it is difficult to get science-based facts packaged in a way that consumers also see, we understand that this is going on. In terms of misconception, I also see a role for us and all the stakeholders package it in a better way that science-based information is understood better to take away these misconceptions. And secondly, if we talk about technology, there are so many great things that can potentially be groundbreaking. There's artificial intelligence. We have big data processing. We have blockchain. We have all these fascinating things. However, I think one major misconception also with some of our prospective clients, they jump on the bandwagon of something that is really cool but in the end it turns out to be very complex and in our philosophy we think that human intelligence should not be forgotten because in the end technology is almost never a silver bullet in itself it's always people that have to work with it technology is just a tool in the end of the day it's always people (laughs) making decisions so i think that one of the main misconceptions ah you have to use ai because that's the most fantastic around Yes, for some applications it is. But for many, we don't want to have a very data-heavy approach, which is making things more costly and more complex, just simple approaches. So on the end of the day, one takeaway would be for me that human intelligence, it will matter for years to come. Yeah, that's so true, right? I think you're just sharing about how much technology has improved, but the use cases and who's going to actually going to pay for that technology to be deployed is oftentimes the harder part. And I think that's something I'm curious about because so many people who work in environmental sustainability, I see many of my friends who reach out to me as well, and they have a big goal and they want to help the world, they care about certain cause. And then, you know, they have an idea, like you said, of how to solve the problem, but they can't find someone to pay for it. And sometimes I talk about it as someone who cares cares about it enough to pay for it, right? So how did you get about finding people who care about it enough to pay for what you're delivering? I think it is a sign of the times. It's the period we're in. I've seen applications 15 years ago. We were talking about the same things. Back then, the technology was not ready. It was far too expensive anyway. But the ideas were good. 
Right now, satellite imagery, a lot of it is freely available. Cloud computing wasn't possible a few years back. It's now also very affordable. So in that part, the technological developments have been conducive. That's all nice, but still the market has to be conducive, as you say. I think what we are seeing now is that the acceptance with people that things have to change is bigger than ever. It is also the right time, basically. It's the right time and we see leaders who are taking their responsibility in changing things. For example, we started working with a trading company a billion four years ago. They were really forward thinking about, okay, we have to use satellite information with our own information system, own uh, supply chain, factories, mills, etc., and combine that to give transparent information to clients to make our work accountable. And they see that that is helping their reputation, but also contracts. And that's what I see we're moving towards right now, that in procurement and that the financial people, usually we used to be in contact with the sustainability people, the sustainability department. And also even now with some companies, that, that's one person who cares about these kind of sustainability issues and it has a huge task. But we see more and more that it is shared with the procurement. It's more integrated with all these big companies. And I think that is also a trend that helps in the understanding, the transformation that the whole world, the whole market has to go through. And we see that happen right now. So I think that is a combination that even during these COVID times, we see even increasing interest in making the world a better place, actually. So I think this trend will, will continue. There's a lot of truth to that, right? Which is the market has changed tremendously. Like, I agree yeah. with you. I think 15 years ago, the technology has changed. But I think the market for sustainability has changed dramatically over the past 15 years. Because I think 15 years ago, it was like, if the problem happens in a different country, we don't care. <laughs> That's yeah. what companies were, right? And then the consumers have gotten a lot smart to be like, oh, even though I'm using toothpaste here, yeah. I care about how the toothpaste was made every step of the way, yeah, we see that also with the current consumers, millennial consumers, they are very tech-minded and they also just want to know, okay, don't tell me something, show me the provenance of my goods and their sustainability credentials. I think that is also part of the situation at the moment. Yeah, I think that's something that's often underrated and I think a lot of credit goes to all of the lobbying and consumer education groups that are out there, right? Because a lot of people are like, oh, consumer education doesn't do anything. And I'm like, no, it does. Because when consumers care, then the firms will slowly care. And they hire, like you said, the one person who's supposed to care about it, the sustainability officer. Then yeah. slowly the rest of the company cares about it. So it's a slow exactly. process. How did you get your first customers? I mean, you started out, right? And then you had already been working in satellite and imagery and so, so forth. But how did you get your first clients at the door? What was it like signing that first sales meeting or sales contract? I think what was very critical is the 20 years of experience on the ground and the network. Yeah, like I mentioned, it is partnerships are very important for implementation, but also in our case for our sales. I think it is evident that why I mentioned this thought leadership, bringing in also experience from others, because this is an emerging field. It is an emerging technology in an emerging market. So everything is, is kind of new. Everyone is piloting things. Uh, and in that sense, I think it is important that I see also my role, not only as a CEO of the company, but also our company as a whole to help share examples and to inspire also companies showing things that really work with other clients and other partners. 
Could you share with us what was it like if you went back in time to your first client, like your first sales contract? How did you get the deal, your first ever customer? Because most yeah. people struggle with that, right? And I always tell people, yeah. like, all your customers after the first customer is much easier. But who, what was your first customer like? What really helped is the network I set up in 20 years' time. So the early days were people know me. I know the people working, the forward-thinking companies needing our kind of information. And then, to be honest, I have not the exact way that it went, but I called out and said, we're monitoring these and these areas, and, and yeah, your company is working there. Uh, could join forces if we can see what's really happening on the ground and that, that you verify our, our satellite data. And they said, yeah, this is exactly what we want to do. And then, of course, it was fantastic to have that. But I think it's all about relations. And we actually didn't do our first year any proactive sales. It was all based on word of mouth. So that was really nice. And then we knew that, okay, if we want to scale further, we would need to have a more uh, proactive sales approach, which is including a lot of explaining the technical stuff that we're, we're doing. So basically more consultative selling in a way. That has been a very conscious decision to uh, focus a lot on that. That's amazing. You know, I think it's interesting because you've been one of the few people who have done that really commitment as, you know, you were an employee for 14 years at the same company, and then you made the jump to becoming a co-founder. And today, you know, nobody wants to spend 14 years at one company, right? I can't imagine anyone who's like, I'm willing to spend 14 years before I go build my business. How do you feel about those 14 years? What parts have been really useful and what parts have you had intentionally yeah. change about how you work? I'm really grateful for that opportunity to be able to learn for myself, explore the world. I'm tremendously grateful for what I've learned. But also, I learned then that I was a very eager guy. That has also to do with my upbringing. I've been a competitive swimmer for a very long time, since I was a small boy, five years old, until my early 20s. I was in the water every day with my head on the water, training for goals. So a goal setting was was really very important for me. And that's very individualistic uh, with your head uh, underwater. I think that what I miss is that I was working at a very individualistic company and a company that was also doing, uh, say, more science for, for the sake of science with less attention to customer service and doing real service provision. So although at the beginning, I never thought of working at any other company. In the end, I thought if you want to have to have done something right, maybe take charge of your own future. I think that's a very important one. So don't depend on other people for making things right for you. Take proactive action. And that's where I thought, okay, what's important for me? How do I think that I can help transform the commodity production sector? Let's set up a company in a way uh, that I did. But that's also brought some challenges uh, along the way for my personal role, obviously. <laughs> When you think about what you've done and progress, how do you personally upskill or change how you work, right? So you know, you're an employee, right? You know, for 14 years, you learned how to work there. Then you became a co-founder, but then you must have been learning a lot. Were you reading anything? And then obviously then you became, as, as a company has grown out to over 20 people, obviously the way that you work has continued to change. So how do you change the way that you work? It is quite a challenge because, as you said, I've been an employee and then I've do, been doing my own thing for a long time. And then in 2016, I thought, okay, I, I start this company. 
at the same time, I had my son. So it was very tough. During the night, I was a father uh, preparing milk uh, for this baby. And during the day, I was doing legal, financial, product development. I was doing basically all the tasks together with my two colleagues were starting out there. And a year later, we got seven more people in. Also, our co-director, Arjen Freeling, joined. And then it grew really fast. And what was most challenging for me in, in my role in leadership was that the changes went so fast and that I had to change from... I mentioned that I used to be a swimmer and I was very much hardwired Goal, achieve goals, do that on your own. Uh, and then I was, uh, say, say, part of a, a big team where my team could take charge for all kinds of tasks. And that was evolving so fast that it was difficult to get adjusted to that role because that role was changing all the time. So I didn't have to do the, the actually development of products or the operational parts. There were days that I, I was doing the remote sensing uh, GIS stuff on my laptop which I miss occasionally, I have to admit. But there's now all kinds of other people doing that. And my role now is more building this sense of community and inspiring. That has not been easy. So I'm happy you ask about, okay, what kind of things do you read? And for me, it was a lot of learning by doing, but also making sure to have, say, kind of a small ecosystem of people who know better than me and that inspired by them. I think that is uh, important. And it also relates to when I was small, I was the swimmer and my family were my support team. And the objective was that I would win medals and stuff like that. I think that individualistic look had to change to the team and that my role would be more to inspire the team with my 20 years experience and how things can work out and, and stuff like that. And there I had also the support of a coach, which I started working with last year. So yeah, that's a very long answer. Read yourself on the internet because it amazes me how many founders and business people don't inform themselves, apparently. They're just doing things. And then it turns out, if you look on the internet, people have already invented the wheel. And you can learn a lot from that uh, through podcast or whatever. There's a lot out of there. So I think that is very key. And then having a group of people that can support you in your leadership role with advice. Always be, pre be prepared to take advice from people who know much better than you, but still have the mindset of questioning everything, be critical. I think those are the main things for that. Now, what's interesting as well, when you shared all of that is that you have a coach and I myself was of an executive coach. So it's funny because so many founders, you know, like our super weapon is a coach, right? You know, and I remember someone was like telling me, it's like, I thought the whole point of being a founder is that you don't have to report to anybody or that you don't need to have a boss or a mentor. You can do it yourself. So that's been an interesting part for so many people is that decision around the fact that every founder is part of a community and needs a lot of help. Yeah, and it helps also in reflecting on, on my role and how I work. I'm working with Gloria van Ewijk uh, with a life impact company. And one key thing, she helps me, I have to do it. So that you're still in charge of yourself. <laughs> but she hands me examples and feedback which is really useful to see things in a different perspective. And that's something that I value so much. It's just like she says, okay, here's the like button. You can click it on uh, like this. And then I know, ah, yeah, maybe I can deal with the situation in this way. That, that really helps, especially as I told all of you about this transformation from this individualistic sportsman to a team inspirator kind of role. So yeah, I'm very glad that I took the decision to do this.
What's interesting as well is that you've been you know, coached by and then you're learning how to change yourself. So I'm sure that a lot of companies in environmental sustainability come up to you and ask you for help or advice. What are some common pieces of advice that you normally give to people who are looking to enter environmental sustainability and looking to build a startup or an organization inside that field? It's funny that you say that because just last week we had a request from a computer vision company. They came all the way from the tech side saying, yeah, how can you advise on what we're doing? I really love those kinds of requests and I'm always open to discuss these, these kind of things. It's just very fascinating. I think at this moment it is hard for me to pick some generic things. I also think because it's also new, it's hard for me to think of some from very good concise recommendations or things. When you were early in the stages of the company, do you remember any advice that you got in the early days of the company that you liked or remember? I think that being open to learn from people who've been there, that is key. A lot of the challenges are not challenges that are unique to you, the founder of a company. There are many more people around the world who have struggled with that. So... I think I started reaching out to people. Also with setting up the company, we had uh, also an advisor, a very experienced remote sensing person. He helped us out uh, a, a lot with uh, kind of the basics. So legal, who to go to for financial things. So also here it is, go out and find yourself some good advice. <laughs> that would be the key thing. A lot of the things that we learned were not so much that people advised us to do so, but more the common sense and the talking to my advisor and friends and, and this supporting ecosystem, as I mentioned it, which helped to grow us as a company. I think that that is more a key thing. So, you know, one of the interesting things is that, you know, when you're getting advice from people and you're meeting people... You know, a lot of people will tell you it's a good idea, you know, we like you. But there's also a lot of people who tell you it's a stupid idea, it's a bad idea, it's not going to work, the market doesn't care. I think for my previous two companies, each time in the early days, you know, the first one was like, oh, the clients don't care, they don't want to improve. <laughs> Second one was like, oh, you know, the market is not ready for this, etc. You know, my hear feedback like that when someone says like, oh, I don't think uh, Satelligence is going to work or people don't care about the environment or maybe you should change your customer. How should a founder think about it? Should they be happy? Should they be sad? Should they be like, that's not true? How should you receive such negative feedback? I think Satelligence is kind of an unusual example in that me and several of my colleagues had been working in this field for, say, 10, 15, 20 years already. And that made that we knew exactly what we wanted to do when we started out. We already had the network. We had, say, kind of a proven product market fit already. So in a way, you could say that for us, it was kind of easy is not the right word, but I think the struggle had been before uh, we set up the company. So maybe that's also setting up a business. People in Europe want to know for sure whether something will work, whether the startup mentality in the US is more like, I have this crazy idea, let's go do it. And uh, we'll see later uh, what comes of it. I also think it's a bit of the mentality here, but definitely also all the struggle we already had. 
to create a product market fit and really be conscious and look what's happening. So for that reason, it's a bit difficult to comment on getting criticism of things that didn't work. It's also my competitive nature because uh, I set out to prove my point that we could do it. And it was like a swimming match, like, okay, this is the target, we go do it. And we know exactly what we're doing. We have been training for it for years. And yeah, uh, let me think for some criticism because we also embrace failure. I think that's very important. There have been many things that from an internal process which, where we failed, which we could have done in another way. But so far, I, I don't think like big things like people saying, ah, you're crazy doing this so far. So maybe we're incredibly lucky that we set out the way we did. It's kind, kind of a lot of success along the way, actually, after a lot of struggle. So it's not that yeah. we didn't have to struggle, but it was all before we established the company. <laughs> No, I mean, that's exactly true, right? I mean, I think you built it in a very common way, which is, you know, you saw, you had a company, you saw the problem, you struggled while you're being paid by the company. And so you yeah. could hear all the criticism, but the company wasn't there yet, but, you know, that was a good safe space to experiment and try. And like you say, you're competitive. So you wanted yeah. to prove something could work. So I think it's interesting, right? Because I think a lot of people, they feel like they have to quit their jobs before they can do a startup, right? And I don't know if you saw that, like some of my friends were like, oh, Jeremy, I got to quit my job before I do my startup. And I'm like, oh, hold up. Your startup is very high level right now. Maybe you should stay at a company for a bit longer, right? And yeah. work on a company while you're there. What do you think? Yeah. Do you tell your friends to stay at a company for a bit longer before you do a startup? I think gaining experience and thinking critically is something you can do basically everywhere. Yeah, I agree with you about that. And also, it's nice to be able to continue being able to eat food and pay rent. <laughs> For sure, yeah. You know, I'm just kind of curious as well. If you could go back in time 10 years, what advice would you give yourself? To have done this earlier, <laughs> earlier on. Maybe, but it's also maybe in my nature, is to cling to, I'm here at this company, doing what I want, trying to change things but not seeing that the context in which where I was, was kind of shackling me in a way, uh, keeping me from growing the way I could. So maybe, which relates to the question you just had, it is also maybe a bit that dare to get out of the comfort zone and just try if you can do it or not. You'll find out. <laughs> if you think it's a good idea, go for it. Awesome. Well, it's a pleasure catching up with you. Thanks for having me.